This is Rod Allen. And I'm John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Joel, we've started spring break here in British Columbia this week, so, and we hit an interesting watershed on uh, Friday where we no longer have to wear masks in public. And schools, students will come back to school after spring break and will be mask free after a year of masking. And it's it's being met with both uh, optimism and some trepidation. As, as some folks are going, uh, I think I still want to keep wearing my mask, but I'm worried that I'm going to be bugged or teased if I do, but I really kind of still want to. And um, it's an interesting, interesting place in our in our pandemic arc. How are things rolling down there? Yeah, that's exactly where we are as well. The mask came off at school today, though kids and adults have the, you know, can wear them if they want. And there was a a strong move at the board meeting on Thursday that kids would not be stigmatized if they chose to wear them at this point. So, you know, as with all things culture, you know, you can make rules and it, it depends on how you've built your culture, whether you can make those rules come to life. So my, my kids go to a pretty nice school where people are pretty good to each other. So I, I think they probably can do it, but I'm not sure that that would necessarily be true everywhere. Yeah, it was interesting. I was in a grocery store on Saturday and I'd say observation, probably 65, 70% of the people weren't wearing their masks, but probably almost 100% wore them in the door. And then you could see them gradually partway through down an aisle. They'd sort of look around and then take their mask <laughs> off slowly and breathe the air and see if you know they keeled over or anything. And by the checkout counters, fewer and fewer people were wearing masks. It's kind of an interesting... Uh, yeah, it's just kind of weird. We get so used to something like that. It's also spring here in my life, and for many people in the United States, is uh, marked by uh, March Madness, the uh, college basketball tournament. And the very first thing I can remember about the uh, pandemic was the Ivy League deciding to cancel their basketball tournament two years ago. And uh, me thinking, well, then, like, how are we going to know, like, which team should go to the NCAAs? Like, they can't just cancel the the tournament and just take the regular season champion. That's that's not the rules. And then uh, a day or two later, they canceled the NCAA tournament. And I was like, oh, this this is a real thing, you know. So anyway, so two years later, the fact that all of that, you know, for some people, it's taking off the mask. For me, it's like the, the fact that the tournament is back the way that it, it should be sort of signals that we're in a different stage of this. So it's good. Yeah, we're we're feeling a, a a a little while ago you were talking about how optimistic you were and I was I was being hesitant and knocking on wood whenever I could find it and I'm now I will officially state I am feeling optimistic too. I think uh, we're in we're in for a good few months anyway. Uh, almost 2 years to the day my son went back to work for Air Canada. So he's uh back to flying planes again and uh my daughter got uh she was scheduled to work on a dig in Ireland. Uh, archaeological dig in Ireland two years ago, and again, almost two years to the day, they sent her an email saying, we're back on for July, so come on over. So it's, it's like, you know, people are getting their lives back and kind of picking up two years later, almost exactly where they left off. It's weird. Joel, we have some guests today while we're sitting here chatting. We are being joined by Andy Calkins and Carlos Beato, both from NGLC. Uh, and Joe, would you like to introduce them? Sure. So we're very lucky to have Carlos and Andy with us today. NGLC, I think, has been one of the kind of signal organizations in trying to sort of move us into this future. NGLC did a lot of work connected to the small schools movement and sort of the next generation high schools in the aughts and, and tens. And so they sort of, they were one of the forces that helped bring the sort of what what could this actually look like on the ground into being. And then more recently, they've been working at the district level and thinking at more scale. Maybe they've always thought at more scale, but they've been working more uh, at larger at larger scale. So they're they're great to have with us. And then specifically, Carlos uh, was the founding principal of the International High School at Langley Park in Bladensburg, Maryland, which is an innovative school. Uh, that serves English language learners. He's taught in the Bronx, been a Pajara Fellow, and uh, is now the co-director of NGLC. 
And then Andy leads strategy development, organizational management, and others for NGLC. Brad, we've had the pleasure of knowing Andy for a few years now, and he's come to our convenings and always inserts the right comment at the right moment to help people move forward. And I really have valued his counsel and colleagueship uh, over the years. So Carlos and Andy, welcome to Free Range Humans. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And, uh, and I'll just say, you know, in this tiny category of experiences that you can call life-changing, uh, I would place my first Deeper Learning Dozen convening up in Cowichan Bay, Rod, that you hosted. It was truly life-changing. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a big statement. All right. Well, we'll have to hear more about that later, but let's start, you know, before you start like pumping air into your, into your host, let's, let's at least like ask a question or two uh, for, for, for the guests, uh, but Rod, I'll, I'll make sure we leave plenty of time. For that <laughs> to, uh... <laughs> so one project I know that you've been involved in is this, what made them so prepared project, which we've, we've done a little bit with you. So Andy, how about we start with you? Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of this project? Yeah, and well-timed since that project gets released this, this week. It was born out of a group that we called All In This Together. It was an every other week, late Friday afternoon, beer storming group, virtual beer storming with about 20 organizations, all in the student-centered, deeper next-gen learning space. It started in April. 2020 and driven by the feeling that uh, there there must be something something we can do to be useful right now but we're not quite sure what it is uh, because as you recall every educator out there was going completely wacko bonkers nuts you know trying to completely re-envision their entire practice right then and nine of those partners there are eight other organizations and us ended up over the course of several months landing on an idea. We, we were all hearing the same thing from various schools and districts in our networks that, you know, unlike many of the school districts that I was seeing respond around where I live here in Massachusetts and elsewhere, that were basically all gathering around a chorus of, you know, we're waiting for guidance you know, from the USED or from the state or from the board or from somebody, please give us guidance. We were hearing from schools and districts that said, actually, you know, we, we felt pretty prepared for this. You know, we, we have been all about trying to help our kids develop a set of 21st century skills around resiliency and, and collaborative problem solving and self-direction and agency. And that's how we have tried to make our, ourselves act as organizations. And so, yeah, there was a lot of reinvention here and a lot of pain and a lot of angst and a lot of hurt, but we, you know, we felt like we were prepared and we thought someone needs to tell that story. And so that's what's coming out in this research. So these are just to resummarize a little bit what you just said, these are districts that have been thinking about 21st century competencies or working in adaptive ways for a few years now. And then this pandemic hit. And I think Rod and I found this also in some of the districts we were working with and the network that we've been helping to convene that if the thing that you're doing is like improving math scores point by point, then you know maybe you have a complicated infrastructure in place, which involves coaches and time and structure. And all of a sudden, like if the kid's not there, you're really uh, in, in a bad place. But if what you've been teaching and working on is, you know, how to adapt to uncertainty or face an uncertain future or see uh, how practices emerge and then spread those practices, then at least in theory, you should be prepared for uh, something like the pandemic because that presents you with a lot of that kind of complexity. So can you tell us a little bit about one or two big things that you saw across these districts? Yeah, and and you're you you're hitting right on it. Uh, this is sort of a a grand, you know, w let's walk our own talk story. These are all places that 
are overt about saying, you know, literacy and numeracy, super important. Nobody's backing away from it, but guess what? It's not the only thing that matters. And so our vision for student success is, and they, they tend to have a really nicely built out community driven definition of, of what success means right now in the 21st century. And it includes all of those 21st century skills. And then, you know, they don't stop there. They said, all right, and that's going to have like huge implications for our learning model far beyond a new math curriculum or this kind of tweak or that. It, it really goes to the root of what, how students are experiencing school. But then the crucial part is they all say, and the kids are just not going to develop that if the adults around them and the professional environment doesn't also embody the same attributes. And so the bumper sticker here is, you know, they have made their learning models, their operating models at the same time. Their strivings, you know, so that anyone could walk in and talk to any school or district employee and say, look at that poster there. You know, you want your kids to be resilient, innovative, problem-solving, lifelong learning innovators. Is that who you are as an adult working in this system? And have them say, yeah, actually, yeah, that's how we work. That's, that's our norm. And so, you know, what the project surfaces is a whole set of stories from them about what that looks like in practice. Carlos, speaking of practice, you are a, a practitioner. You're, you're a, have been a, a teacher, vice principal, principal. Was there a story or two that, that jumped out at you from, from this research that, you know, sort of from that practitioner lens that, that seemed really illustrative of, of the th kinds of things that Andy's talking about? Yeah, I think one of the things that stood out for me, and we talk about this all the time in terms of like, the mirroring of beliefs and the modeling of those beliefs, which Andy just brought up. And I think it's very important when, when being in innovative spaces that uh, there's a certain mentality, a certain growth mindset about how people work around kids and really delivering on what it is that they are saying that they're truly delivering to, meaning that alignment needs to exist between what the portrait of a graduate is and what the practice is at the classroom level. So there are multiple layers of really embedding who you say you are. And I think each level enables each other in order to get all the way to the student supports and the classroom instruction. That alignment or coherence that you talk about, Carlos, I think is such an important thing. And I think something that's sadly lacking in so many areas in our systems. I know in British Columbia, when we began our transformation work a number of years ago, we have a document in the School Act called the Educated Citizen, which is sort of the attributes of the graduate. And it was wonderful. It was written in 1988. It was spectacular. We trot it out and show people and they go, ah, that's, that's really good, but you should do it. Um, <laughs> right. It's a spectacular document. All you do is the first, uh, the first point, which is sort of the academic part. And then there's sort of nine other ones about decision makers and participants in society and sort of the good human beings. And, and we sort of ignore all that stuff because you can't really test that. So for, for us, it was a matter of alignment and, and, uh, or perhaps more coherence than alignment, but, but I certainly hear what you're saying. Yeah. And I think also important to note. It's actually how much has a district, a school evolved with their student demographics? And then how does that still match to the original vision of the portrait of a graduate? And so I think a lot of schools did a lot of rethinking. You know, I think this is what what made them so prepared brought out is along with that thinking, there's always that space for iteration and rethinking what it is that you're doing. And the, the places that I think were most prepared were those spaces that don't leave that iterative space and that are actually always in a space of wonder and growth and doing the same kind of innovation that we're asking kids and teachers to engage in. 
Joel, that sounds a lot like sort of this this idea that we use in in, in deeper learning dozen around uh, sort of the fractal and, and symmetry. What what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, we talked about symmetry as both a property that just almost tends to exist, like it's just hard for people to maintain cognitive dissonance. So, like as Sarah and I traveled to a lot of schools, schools where principals were controlling teachers, teachers were controlling students, and in places where administrators were more supportive, distributed, empowering of teachers, teachers tended to be that way more with students. And we just didn't find many places where it was one way between principal and teachers and a different way between teachers and students. I think it's just hard to to live in that kind of environment. I was looking for a video for a presentation I was giving, and I was looking for an inquiry-based elementary school video where teachers were engaging in inquiry with students. And I was watching this video, and the teacher was in theory, modeling inquiry-based practices, but every second sentence out of her mouth was learning target. Like, we're going to do this, and there's going to be this learning target, and we're going to do that, and there's going to be that learning target, and then the students are going to ask questions, and that's going to lead to this learning target. And I thought, you're you're like halfway there. Like, you've, you've, you've got the new, but you haven't let go of the old yet. Like, I'm not opposed in theory of there being some level. You want to have some sense of what students are learning and where things are going, but the weight of the inquiry was being crushed under the learning targets. That's a sort of a converse example that when you don't have the symmetry, you can sort of talk the talk, but not walk the walk to use your, your language, uh, Rod. It's symmetry. And it's also this sort of through line of coherence. You know, when Carlos was talking about, you know, replacing the sort of, command and control and compliance dynamic that exists between one level and the next. Some of these places deliberately say that they have gone right after that. And, and at every level from, you know, board to district, to district, to school leadership, to school leadership, to teachers and teachers, to kids, every level defines itself, uh, you know, around the job of enabling and catalyzing the level next to it to do the best work it can do. They're trying to reverse the flow. You know, it's it's not every level telling the next level what to do and, and how they'll be tested, which then shows up in how kids experience school. It's the, it's the opposite of that. One of the things that David Albury often talks about is typical hierarchical pyramids with a pointy end on the top. And the job there at the top is you make decisions and you hold the people below you accountable and that sort of, you know, shit flows downhill kind of model of, of how hierarchies work. And you can muck around with the deck chairs, but really nothing really changes in, in those kinds of structures. And of course, at the bottom of those are always kids because, you know, that, that's where kids are. And he said, if we really want to put kids at the center, what if we flip that upside down? And, and, then, and then you've got a more of a cradle. And the idea is that if it's all about kids and learning and, and supporting the young people, then what is it that teachers do to enable that? What is it that principals and vice principals do to enable the teachers to enable that? And, and so on. And uh, I, I was showing that model to a minister of education when I was working for government. And, and he looked at that and said, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, but it's scary because one's really stable and one's really tippy. And, and that means that if I make a decision, I could tip the whole thing over. If it's the wrong decision, it's like, uh, yeah, perfect. Exactly. But it's interesting how those words changed up the side. Instead of accountability, it was more responsibility. Instead of, you know, making people do things, it was how do I enable them to to act in the in in the ways that they need to act to to get the outcomes that we all want. So and that's more coherence than alignment, I think. Yeah. I, you know, when people are inside of an organism, you know, a school that behaves in the way that it, that it says is, is its set of values. I, you know, isn't that a definition of coherence? You say one thing, you are helping your constituents, the kids develop those things, and you yourself are trying to live them out loud yourself. And if one of those three things is absent, then coherence is destroyed. 
And also kids are very good hypocrisy spotters. So if you don't live your values, it's like my kids' schools where there's like the bluebirds and the robins, but it's very clear to the kids that there are, you know, the upper track and the lower track. You can't say one thing and model another thing and expect kids not to do what you say, not what you do. Speaking of kids, uh, we just sort of plunge straight into the content. Maybe we should go back a bit. And I'd love to hear a little bit from each of you, like how you got into this work and in particular, like how you uh, developed your convictions around what was wrong with, with schools and what schools might look like someday. If you are a free range human, like what, what makes you a free range human? Where does this all stem from, from you? Like what calls you or motivates you to do this? Carlos, you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first and foremost, my why is grounded on my upbringing as an English language learner, which I now like to use the term bilingual emergent because it's more acid-based thinking and also growing up as an undocumented student in the Bronx and then moving on in life and then experiencing college at a private liberal arts institution with a majority white student population. And I think all of those experiences collectively shaped who I was as a teacher and what I wanted my bilingual emergent students to experience, things that, you know, may have been done to me um, unintentionally, like my teacher walking around in fifth grade, which was my first time in a monolingual classroom and walking around with middle school applications to a specialized high school and skipping over me. And just having that cemented in my brain and and just asking myself why and, and why that happened to then making sure that I had built on my classroom where it was a culturally responsive space, speaking to the experiences of the students that I served and speaking to the needs that they had coming in, ranging from students that had no access to the alphabet in both their native language and English to being super proficient in the English language. And so, yeah, those are some of the things that shaped me and, and, you know, some of my convictions that, you know, as long as you put the challenge in front of students, they will take you up on it and they will, uh, as long as you give them the support that they need, they will meet you at the challenge. It's just how you get there and the experiences that you provide to them that either make it or break it. And, and there comes International High School at Langley Park, which was a school uh, that was dedicated to and still is a school dedicated to 100% bilingual emergent students. And the whole concept of competency-based learning was thought with them in mind and their experience in schooling. So, yeah. Carlos, I, I love hearing you tell that story, um, in part because it just reminds me of why I love working with you as profoundly as I do, because, you know, in my fifth grade class in the Cleveland public schools, you know, I was the kid who was given that application. You know, I, I was the white affluent kid who the system was sort of designed around perniciously advancing and supporting with the full understanding that not everybody else was going to get the amazing rock star teachers that I, I was going to get, you know, and even as a, 12 year old, I, I mean, we lived in Cleveland because my dad moved us there so he could run for the Cleveland board of ed. We talked about all this a lot, you know, and I was sort of aware that this was like really unfair, really unfair. And so even at that early age, I think there was a sort of a social purpose um, lit inside of me that that has now i mean you know two of my three siblings are also in education one of them is a principal in the washington dc schools and we all sort of are burning with the same desire to like make our privileged place on the planet count you know so carlos and i are burning with the same fire but it has sort of a different kindling behind it Joel, is it fair to ask you the same question? 
what, what put you on this track? Sure. Well, one part is similar to Andy's. I grew up in Baltimore and was on the, the right side of the tracks. I went to a, a private school and it was progressive and inquiry oriented. And we called teachers by their first names and they were very interested in our thoughts on a number of things, maybe even a little too much so in, in retrospect, in the sense that, you know, like adolescents do not possess all the wisdom that's out there in the world that perhaps they should be shown that, you know, that there are some things they could learn from other people. But Baltimore just is a very segregated and unequal city. And uh, I got to know a lot of kids from across the city through uh, sports and then, you know, we're pretty good friends. And then we came to the end of high school and myself and the other private school kids I knew were going off to four-year colleges. And uh, a lot of my friends were not, and it certainly wasn't for any like lack of grit or those kinds of things that people throw around these days. My sports friends had much more uh, grit than my private school friends uh, by far in terms of what they had managed and taken on in life though what they didn't have was uh, opportunities in the form of good schools and so that's a, a large portion of where it started and it's you know there are lots of forces that perpetuate racial inequities in our society of which schools are only one but that got interested in schools as the one that one could you know something you could grab onto and maybe really change the trajectory of someone's uh, life. And then I guess the other part of it was Sarah and I spent a lot of time in schools over the last 10 years. And what kids could do when they met with us at lunch was like much more insightful and interesting than much of what they were being asked to do in schools. And that was true in suburban schools and affluent schools, as well as poorer schools. So those two things together, I think are, are a big part of it. Rod, how about you? Hmm. Uh, very similar stories. I grew up in Ottawa, uh, about as white bread a community as you could find in North America. For some reason, was in uh, got got selected in kindergarten and and went into this sort of special program, and we got to do all kinds of really cool stuff. And and I realized uh, partway through that that not all kids got the same. I just assumed everybody was like me, right? And we all and got the same opportunities and did all the same cool stuff. I just didn't know about it because they were in other classrooms. And then I realized that that wasn't the case. And I was quite horrified by that, that, well, what, why why is that? Like, I, I couldn't quite get my head around that. So so that was sort of an, an, an early piece for me to try to, f as I was trying to sort that out. Did my teacher training, uh, I'm the only teacher on my family, unlike Andy, I was doing my teacher training in Victoria, British Columbia, and that's, boy, even whiter bread than than Ottawa. And had experience in, in a couple of elementary schools, then went north for my first teaching job and was in a community in northern Saskatchewan that was all Indigenous and realized immediately I knew nothing about where I was or who I was charged with, air quotes, teaching. And looking at the textbooks and looking at the curriculum was absolutely horrified by some of the things that I was supposed to be saying and doing and and had that moment where you just sort of chuck everything out the door and go, okay, I'm not doing any of that stuff. We're, we're going to do something different. And and I think that moment of, of horror at who's making these choices about learning uh, for these kids when they don't know anything about the community, they've probably never been here or to any of the similar kinds of communities. So I think that sort of set me on the, on the rebel, the rebel path to uh, do something different. So thank you all for for sharing those stories. I, I think it's important, and 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 maybe I'll just stay on this track just for a moment and and ask you what is it that you think you you personally are contributing to this movement, sort of this this, this pathway. What what is it that that you're seeing as as your important or 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 central uh, focus for what whatever it is that you're contributing to the to the this large conversation. Andy, do you want to go, want to go first? Uh, yeah. What drew me to NGLC 11 years ago to begin with was its sort of founding premise, which was we have this ungainly name, Next Generation Learning Challenges. What the heck does that mean? But it was born by the Gates Foundation and the Hewlett Foundation to literally challenge the field to reimagine itself. 
And that, that founding premise was that this time around, it's gotta be the educators who lead the charge, you know, not the psychometricians, please, you know, and not the 29 year old policymakers, you know, in DC, you know, and not Out even shots fired at the psychometricians. Yeah. And, and, and not really the university people or even God bless them, the nonprofit blob people, you know, I mean, we exist not to like, you know, invent the answer ourselves. We exist to catalyze and connect and learn from the educators who are going to have the best answers, right? And and they, for so long in this country, uh, maybe less so in Canada, Rod, you know, have been stuck inside of a system and a mindset and a culture that hasn't really valued their capacity to do that. And so we have routinely assigned the sort of directorial management of what happens in public schools to people who are pretty far away from what actually happens in those schools. And so if we can help be part of engineering that so that it is these like incredible impatient rule breaking, you know, visionary educators who are the ones who are saying, no, this is what it looks like. And this is what set of policies and regulations will help support us to do this for every single kid, you know, then that's good. I remember once I was asked to give a little talk to the graduating undergrads in our education program from Harvard who are going to go out and do all sorts of things. And I said, if you find yourself in a school in the next few years in a business suit, giving a PowerPoint presentation to people that you don't know very well, like you're on the wrong track. And if you find yourself, you know, in, in school clothes, talking and relating to people and uh, either being in a school or working with someone to help them solve a problem, then you're on the right track. And it just, it just sort of seconds uh, some of what Andy was saying. So you threw away all your suits in that moment. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have, I don't have very many suits, but uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> In fact, y'all, I don't think I've ever seen you wear a tie. I'm sure you have one somewhere. I, I do. I I wear it on. It's interesting. This is actually a really interesting question, you know, in light of the colonialism discussions we're having. I mean, realistically, like when does one wear a tie? One wears a tie when one goes to a meeting in D.C. with policy people where other people are going to be wearing ties. And so that sort of raises the question, like, should one wear a tie to that gathering? Is one sort of seating that by wearing the tie, are you embracing this sort of triangle structure you were talking about, uh, Rod? I mean, it is, I'm a academic with some connections to political science, sociology, and education. And if you go to the political science meetings, everybody is wearing a suit. And if you go to the sociology meetings, you know, people are wearing like a, a tweed jacket and a shirt and maybe a tie. And then if you go to the education meetings, people are just wearing like a shirt, if you're lucky. Should we lean into that? Uh, are we acceding to our, you know, lower status in the world? I think there's a lot to be said here. There is. It's all about power, you know? Oh, yeah. And wearing the power, demonstrating the power, right, right. And putting on the uniform of power or not. Carlos, you're a person of color who travels in different circles, which adds a whole other dimension to all of this. How, how do you decide how to dress in different settings? Well, I was the person that would always wear a bow tie, even to work all the time. And I think over time, I started to realize that I was constricting myself in so many ways and also sort of aligning myself to that historical view of power. And I thought I was making a statement by wearing a tie and then realized as a principle that, yes, one could use the tie thing to sort of model for students. But then I started thinking, what am I modeling? 
And it got me into a very deep state of like, do I want to continue to do this? Sure. I wore my uh, suit everywhere. And then I stopped wearing a tie as a principal, uh, which was really weird to me, but also very empowering to be able to align. I think what happens is people align people wearing a tie to intelligence. And I think there's a little bit of conflation there. And I allowed myself to shine in a way that detached me from that mental model of what you're supposed to look like in a leadership role. There's also, you know, and Carlos, I'll be curious to hear what you, what your reaction is to this. A grantee of ours a few years ago told us a story uh, in the nonprofit he used to co-run. They had a, a fairly new staff member who was black, who insisted on coming to work in a coat and tie. And they had a view of themselves as an organization, as a sort of, you know, funky, you know, whatever, relaxed kind of place and so on and so on. And at one point, this guy, this is all about interrogating your first idea. You know, he took the guy aside to give him some advice. You know, you know, some of the people here may think, you know, you think they're better than they are or whatever, you know. And so what, what what's with all this like formality with, you know, and this guy said, I wear a coat and tie so that I don't get mugged on my way to work. You know, it was a, just a, like a whistling Vivaldi kind of story. And, and the guy was just absolutely caught up short. And he wrote a really eloquent blog about it. There's lots of stories with lots of roots and cultural resonance around how we dress. And sometimes uh, the, the, the easy first answer isn't the right one. And then, of course, the pandemic comes and nobody cares anymore. <laughs> <laughs> there's that. Then there's that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Will people show up in the office or in school wearing their pajamas? That's... Uh-huh. Well, they certainly do go to the grocery store wearing their pajamas. So I'm I'm thinking it's probably going to be fine. Andy, you talked a little bit uh, about your experience in Couchin, and I'm not I'm not wanting uh, any more smoke blown. Uh, I agree. I think that was a that was a, a a great convening, and I think for lots of people, including us as hosts, it was transformative, uh, an important sort of marker along along the way of uh, sort of in our DLD uh, growth and our learning arc and and so on. With NGLC, you're you're doing a lot of work around equity not just equity in schools, but but uh, in terms of trying to model the values, uh, equity work right within NGLC. C- can you talk a little bit about that, um, you and Carlos, and, and uh, perhaps how you've been influenced by First Nations knowledge and, and how you're sort of incorporating or thinking about the experience that, that, are, that First Peoples have had and, and, and equity and, and yourselves as, a, as an organization? Carlos, I think you should jump right into that one. Yeah, absolutely. And we are very much intentionally thinking about how we evolve uh, in being an anti-racist organization and an active anti-racist organization by putting our words and actions in alignment Part of the work that we're doing this year is we're trying out a new growth model um, within our organization that is founded on this reverse thinking of Maslow's hierarchy um, and seeing it more from a Blackfoot Nation's perspective. One of those being self-actualization. The idea that people are coming into spaces self-actualized already and that they're contributors to the things that are happening around them. I align that very much to the way that I saw students as a principal, as a teacher, and as an AP, in that multilingual learners are coming in with a set of knowledge and that they have vastly different experiences than other traditional students that allow them to express themselves and to exist in schools in a different kind of way. And so I think within our organization, we're trying to model what that looks like 
for adults. And we very much see a lot of the work that we do as a model for districts and schools based on the transformation design research that NGLC has uh, done in the past decade and really digging deep into, so at what point do we stop notice and reflect and built in those liberatory design moves that allow us to continue the work, but not just solely focusing on one thing, which might then place the attention on one thing and take you away from another and then build inequity in that way, but rather making sure that you're stopping, reflecting, thinking about the changes that you're making in a very conscientious way and implementing safe to fail practices, which is what we're modeling to be able to then stop and say, all right, we did this, we tried this, what worked, what didn't, and how do we move from here? And I think that that's a practice that we so often don't get to experience in schools because we're so quickly moving towards a standard and so quickly preparing kids for assessments. And we don't often think about the human perspective. And I think that that is one of the things that is that has been shown to be one of the most important things, bringing kids and teachers back into school buildings and allowing them to be humans before being teachers and students. And I think that the work that we're doing at NGLC is allowing ourselves to be grounded on our humanness as well. And to be able to share that we're not connecting our growth model to assessing it to this overall proficiency score that is based on a very hierarchical white centered model, but rather centering it on people's actual experiences and it being attached just to their growth, which is what it's meant to be. We want to see people in our organization grow. We want to see them um, self-actualize even further. We want to see how that self-actualization mirrors what the community actualization aspect of it is and how we help organizations evolve into this more human-centered, love-centered model. What you just heard is what Carlos has brought to us in terms of our own ability to do the walk our own talk thing. You know, we keep yakking at schools and school districts uh, about what we've learned from them, from the ones who try to be coherent across their vision, their learning model, their operating model. Uh, You know, in order for that to have any degree of like legitimacy, we need to be doing the same work ourselves, you know? And so Carlos introduced us to this whole re-examination of, you know, how Maslow studied Blackfoot nation culture and misinterpreted it. You know, he he came out with this like pyramid that puts self at the top, self-actualization, when in fact, truly it's at the bottom. And it leads through other stages to community actualization, which is which is you know the the whole the point of everything. And in Blackfoot Nation, you know, the definition of the the wealthiest person is not the one who's acquired the most, it's it's the one who has given the most away. That's Rod to go back to College and Bay. I felt it was like you know one in a series of experiences for me as a you know white male of a certain age. You know, basically the demographic group that has screwed everything up royally. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> tell us how like, you really feel. Like <laughs> to like you know learn a little bit. You know and become aware that what we've always thought of as like the norm isn't the norm at all. It's just a norm within the little slim slice of galactic life and, you know, human nature that we have assigned to Western, you know, white dominant culture thinking. And when you're confronted with how different the mindset and the sort of value set and the the whole you know, engineering of society that so many indigenous peoples had created and how different it is from what we've lived through and just never questioned because it was the air that we breathe. You know, that is what has really 
brought us up short and made us all question why, why we do you know, evaluation of staff and the way we've always done it. What if we tried to do it in this other way? Hmm. And it's such a great example, the, the Maslow example of spending a small amount of time in the company of some indigenous folks and completely screwing up what he's been told because he has to fit it into his mindset, which is this beautiful little pyramid. And it's such a, such a great uh, story. The question is how, how do we help that happen, you know, for millions and millions and millions of people, including sadly, especially people who look like me, you know, otherwise I, 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 I'm not sure how, well, I, what I am sure of is that public education plays a and perhaps the central role in helping to make that happen. I think the answer to that, though, is kind of social movement style. Like we, like the five people on this call, don't make it happen for millions of people. We, uh, you know, contact and model and sort of enact in a different way of working with the people that we touch from people we work with closely to people who uh, we just talk with once. And then other folks sort of continue to carry the torch and the message spreads. I mean, I think if we look at the last eight years or so, I would say the most significant event in education has been the, the movement for Black Lives. If we had a ranking and we could put like the secretary of education or the president or anybody else you wanted on the on the list and one of the things on the list was the movement for black lives like I, I think that's had the most influence because it's named something important and then it's gotten taken up in lots of different corners of the universe in different ways sometimes more performative sometimes more genuine sometimes with people who are ready to hear it sometimes with people who are earlier on their learning journey myself included at different points in time i think that's that's kind of the way that change happens yeah, I love love the idea of the, of the social movement as sort of the model for this as its cultural change. This isn't a new pedagogy or we're going to start teaching this set of facts instead of that set of facts, although it's it's part of all those things, but it's really about reculturing the entire enterprise of how we how we think about and and do learning and and cultural change happens through movements. It happens unfortunately slowly, but the, but there's off there's also I think leaps and bounds like Black Lives Matters. I think in Canada, uh, that certainly has been influential, but also the uncovering of the residential schools issues that that uh, tragedies uh, that happened up here in Canada and 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 down in the U.S. as well. And I think that's jarred people into into some into some action, which is which is good. But it's 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 part of a you know it's a marathon, not a not a sprint. And yes, it's about changing the nature of the enterprises and how they work. And it, it, it all starts with each of us, Jal, as you were saying. One is a lunatic, two is a conspiracy, three is a movement, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that a thing? I like that. That's a thing. Yeah. Uh, okay. I don't know who said it. I just uh, adopted it. But yeah. <laughs> I would say that that's exactly the way that I saw International High School at Langley Park. It was a movement for me in transforming an entire community. And without seeing it as sort of from a savior mentality, but more of how do we allow this community and help this community to exist within the confines of what has been created? And in other ways, how do we disrupt what has been created and the narrative that has been created around um, multilingual learners. And for us, it was about changing that narrative with just being 10 minutes away from DC in that borderline. And, you know, we went through a few tumultuous years in terms of policy and politics during uh, the initial phase of the school opening. And it definitely was about allowing kids to use their experiences to help them create a narrative that they felt empowered by and that they can show the rest of the world because sometimes it's just about you know teaching kids how to show themselves to the world 
teaching our community members to be able to do that as well. So how do we empower communities to create these movements? And Andy, to your point earlier, I think that's where we start. It's public schools. It's the right space to do so because what other space is there uh, in terms of socialization like school? That's where it all happens. That's where kids learn the most outside of home. I would say, and, and, you know, I wouldn't push the streets out of the conversation because a lot of good learning happens in the streets as well. But to answer your earlier question around what am I personally contributing to this movement? And I see it for myself in two ways. Now having both work at the school level and now in the nonprofit sector for me on the school and is the narrative thing that I just talked about. But in, on the nonprofit side is, and in building an anti-racist organization, is the importance of white allyship, one, and the importance of helping bring people of color into positions of power. And I think that our co-director model is a prime example of that in helping us shape what the future of leadership could look like and what the experiences should look like to help people of color feel empowered to be in these spaces, to be making decisions that are impacting the future of schools and allowing um, people of color to be in spaces where innovation is at the center of the conversation and propelling the work forward. The two, the two things that you just heard Carlos say, you know, having greater prevalence of global majority people in positions of power is, is got to be part of the movement narrative, right? And your description, Carlos, about the narrative that you were trying to create at the school reminds me so much of the way these passionate school leaders in Oakland talked about their, it was a middle school called Epic. They created it all around an idea of it being like Hogwarts and all learning happening through learning quests, you know? And so every, every piece of learning was, was, was part of a quest, you know, with, with a goal, but all project-based and everything else. And then entirely around taking these kids who are in the Fruitlands section of Oakland and, and helping them see, uh, a different life narrative that was more hero's journey for them than the narrative that was surrounding them on the streets, you know, and just to bring this back to where we started the whole conversation, the whole point of the prepared project is to help schools and districts generate a new narrative right now to replace the one that is just so gloomy about what, what went on in schools over the last two years, you know, uh, and, and especially this like Omicron was a kick in the teeth, you know, cause, Oh my God, we're going back there, you know? And so for anybody who's saying, how do I pull my community, my school, my district out of this, the, the point is not to say you should feel even gloomier because look at these cool people over here at these 70 schools and districts who like were just, you know, blown it out of the water. no, Every one of you has stories of collaborative, innovative, problem-solving resilience during COVID, but all those stories have been completely swamped, you know, right now. Totally agree. Yeah. You mentioned Harry Potter, Hogwarts, lightning. (laughs) This is my clumsy (laughs) attempt, Jal, at the segue (laughs) to the lightning round. Love it. Uh, okay, it works. It works. I thought you were thinking we have kind segue. of final exam, but sure. <laughs> Real life consequences: uh, learn the spell or die. No, uh, just kidding. Uh, lightning round is what I what I was thinking. The place on the show where we move away from uh, deep, thoughtful, well-considered answers to, to shorter, less considered answers that we grade on a curve and they have and they are right and wrong answers to them. So um, and, and we'll let you know how that works out at the end. <laughs> can, can I just very briefly, a quick Hogwarts aside, uh, do you remember that scene 
where, uh, you know, the sort of the dark arts teacher who's like not long for this world comes and is like, we're going to teach the dark arts, but we're just going to like learn it from the book. You're not actually going to do any spells on anything. And, you know, that that scene sort of plays on the fact that the audience realizes like, of course, you would never try to learn the dark arts just from the book. You have to actually try it out. So why, if it's so obvious that it can be like the centerpiece of a the largest franchise of all time, why is it so hard to actually make it happen in schools if it is sort of, you know, so shared amongst everybody who reads it or watches it? All right, rant over. Go to the lighting room. <laughs> <laughs> Something to think about on a future episode. What's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong? Andy, we'll start with you that you have to make a choice between quote unquote hard skills and content teaching and learning and quote unquote soft skills. Thank you. Carlos, what's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong? That grades matter. <laughs> wow. Short and sweet. Sharp take. I like it. All right. Fill in the blank. I used to think X, and now I think Y. Andy has his finger on his nose. I'm not sure if he's just uh, scratching an itch or if he's trying to indicate that we should go to Carlos first. Uh, yeah, that's my, I'm thinking about that one because there are so many choices. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm still thinking about it too. <laughs> All right, just uh, let's just take a shot at it. Andy, you can go first. I used to think, and now I think. Uh, I used to think, school districts could never emerge as engines for the reinvention of American public education. But now I think some of them are showing us the way. Yeah, I would say I used to think and believe in the narrative that has existed for so long about emerging bilingual students. But now I know by experiencing International High School at Langley Park, that that is absolutely not true. Hmm. Hmm. What's something that traditional schools need to stop doing now? Carlos, you're smiling. You, you have a good one. <laughs> uh, I would say equating learning to seat time. Yeah, uh, I'll leave it at that. But basically, why do we attach time to learning when, in fact, some kids already come self-actualized and understanding material and knowing things from experiences that they have lived? So, yeah. Here, here. Andy. That was such a good one. I'm just going to say amen. Is, is that cheating? I mean, that's, I really that's, like that's that. cheating. Yes. <laughs> And uh, last but not least, as the pandemic ebbs, at least for now, what's something you can't wait to get back to doing? I can't wait to get back to gathering with friends for meals indoors. You know, living in New England, we've had to limit our social engagements to like five months of the year, basically. So that's what I'm hoping for. Part of my consulting work is going into schools physically and speaking to kids about their experiences. And I think that one thing that I'm very much looking forward to is hearing from students and learning from them about what the future of schools could look like. Joel, how about you? What's something you're, uh, you can't wait to uh, wait to do? Celtics playoff games, of course. Uh, <laughs> Got to get in the garden with, you know, 18,000 of my closest friends, which is uh, not something I have been doing over the last uh, couple of years. So there seems to be a convergence between the upswing of the Celtics and the ebbing of the restrictions. So uh, I was going to uh, say that's uh, not all contingent just on, on the pandemic, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's another factor in there. How about you, Rod? What, what do you want to do? 
Well, look, looking at Andy, thinking of the last one of the last times we were together face to face, playing music face to face with friends, where you have to breathe on each other and sing and all that stuff. Yeah, and if it can be done in a really cool bar in downtown Burlington or wherever, all the yeah. better. All the better. Yeah. All the better. Yeah. Yeah. Amen sure. to that. Well, well, well done, gentlemen. Uh, those were all the right answers. Um. <laughs> Except for the one where I cheated. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. It was just so good. I just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to put in the plus one. That's yeah. great. Exactly. Well, this, we really enjoyed it. Thank yep. you. Thank you for joining us. This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, our guests were Andy Calkins and Carlos Beato, both from NGLC. Andy, Carlos, thank you so much for joining us for such a lively conversation. 